Well, it really is a great, uh, great joy to be with you here this morning and to be able to spend the weekend uh, with the Bennetts. I heard Daniel speak at a Together for Adoption conference, the, the first one that we had in South Africa a couple of years ago. And uh, after hearing him preach, I thought we would definitely want to have him come and speak at our yearly missions conference uh, at our church, which is quite a, a big event for us as a congregation. So we invited Daniel to come and to speak about um, ministering to the marginalized. And uh, I just love the time that we spent with Daniel Whitney. My family fell in love with him. My, the rest of my family is so jealous that they're not here this weekend. It's been great to, to spend time with you and really excited about the, what the Lord's doing at Bethany Community Church. And I do pray for you often. I pray for the Bennetts. And uh, I was telling someone today, I feel like I'm, feel like I'm home today. Though I'm a long way from, uh, from South Africa. I look forward this morning to just sharing with you about the gospel from Matthew chapter 1. If I can turn your attention there, and I, I want to preach on this subject of the promise to live by. Uh, glorious, glorious passage, a glorious promise that we have in this uh, opening chapter of the New Testament. And I'm not going to read all of the, the first chapter, but I'd like for us to begin in verse 1, and then we will jump down to uh, verse uh, 17 and read through the end of the chapter. And we're going to focus primarily on verse 21, the wonderful gospel promise, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Matthew writes, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He gives the genealogy and then he summarizes it in, in, in a neat uh, breaking down into 14 generations. So all the gen, verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. So he goes from his genealogy, the first 17 verses now, to his birth. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother, Mary, was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife. And did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. Our Father, we thank you for the worship that we've experienced so far this morning. We thank you that this is another Resurrection Sunday, the day that you have made. We will rejoice and be glad in it because our Savior is risen. And we thank you for the gospel promise that he, he will save every one of his people from every one of their sins. 
Today, Lord, we would pray that as we look at Matthew 1, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would open our hearts and open these scriptures. And just help us to once again glory in the gospel. I pray, Lord, you'd save those who have not yet received the gospel. And those of us who have, that we'd be encouraged that you're, you're committed to saving us to the end. And we ask for your help in Jesus' name. The message of the Bible, I think you could say is, is simply this from cover to cover, is that you are a sinner and you need a Savior. That's the message that is a, a universal message. It's a universal problem that we experience sin and we need to be saved from. The Bible teaches us that we are sinners and there is a Savior and that is to be our universal proclamation that all are sinners but there is a Savior. But as Christians, we can embrace the truth that though we are sinners, we do have the Savior. And that is a universal promise for every, every Christian. The gospel is not, I think Tim Keller said, the gospel is not merely the ABCs of the Christian life. It's not that that just begins our Christian life. It is, it is actually the A to the, to the Z, as we say in South Africa. The A to the Z of the Christian life. It's the beginning and it's the end. Now, many years ago, my wife and I, and at that point, two daughters lived in Australia in the late 1980s and were serving the Lord there. I was saying today, Daniel was in second grade back then, so I feel kind of old. And I had the privilege one day to sit down in the study of an author by the name of Graham Goldsworthy. And I asked, and, and, and he's, a, he's a brilliant man, and his, his office It was about the size of my house, and it was just covered in books. He's a brilliant, brilliant man. And he was telling me about his uh, preaching engagements, and I asked him, I said, when you go out and you, you preach at churches, what is it that you preach? And he looked at me, and he said, young man, this was a long time ago, he said, young man, he said, I preach the gospel. And I said, do you mean you preach evangelistic messages? And he said, well, they are evangelistic, he said, but whether there's unbelievers there or not, I preach the gospel. And he went to Romans chapter 1 and began to open those opening verses. And he taught me something that I never forgot. He said the very thing that you don't just begin your Christian life with the gospel. The gospel drives your Christian life moment by moment. And that was a life-changing event for me to realize that the gospel is not something that I just embrace and move on to deeper things. That actually there's, no, there's nothing more deeper than the gospel. When you come to this verse in Matthew chapter 1, in verse, 20, verse 21, where the angel of the Lord says to Joseph that she will bring forth a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That is a phrase that really is the promise that we as Christians are to live our lives by every hour of every day. This wonderful promise to live by that Jesus Christ not only has saved us from the penalty of sins, and from, from, he's not only justified us, but he's sanctifying us, he's going to glorify us, all because of the gospel. And so in this time this morning, I want to simply expound, particularly verse 21, but understand the context of it, about this promise to live by. This wonderful promise of the good news of what God has done for believing sinners in Christ Jesus. First of all, we have to understand something about the, the context of this wonderful promise. This promise that the angel of the Lord gives to Joseph as he's 
rather perplexed about what has happened concerning Mary. And when the angel of the Lord gives him this gospel promise, it does come in a, in a context, in a historical context. The context is, is actually this. It's the, the context of the failure of man with the faithfulness of God. Before we get to verse 21, where we have this wonderful promise that Jesus will save all of his people from all of our sins, he gives the genealogy. And when you sum up the genealogy, verses 1 to 17, it's really a... It's really a a summary of man's failure throughout history, but God's faithfulness to his gospel promise. He begins and says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. But from this point on, from actually from David and Abraham and all the way through verse 16, all of these people that are in the human genealogy of Jesus, they were all failures. They were all sinners. You look through this list and you see a lot of people who were leaders, namely David and many of the kings. And there were times in Israel's history where they looked to these leaders as perhaps this is someone who's going to lead us to greater glory. But all of them failed. They were all sinners. And yet in spite of Israel's failure, In spite of all these failures of these leaders, God was faithful to his promise. The gospel of God is the promise to live by because God is faithful to his word. As far back as the fall in Genesis chapter 3, God gives us a promise of the gospel. He's going to send his son who's going to crush the serpent's head. And even though the covenant was given to Israel, and even though they failed time and time again, God was faithful. God is faithful, though we are not. The gospel promise is rooted and grounded in God's faithfulness. And that's encouraging because as Christians, we find ourselves failing over and over. I had an email this week from uh, one of my fellow elders. And he was uh, deeply disturbed because of a a way he had failed a, a church member. And, and as he wrote this, this email, he was so discouraged and he felt like he should just quit the ministry because of his failure. And I was able to write to him and say, we, we've all been there. And, 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 and the, the, the real news is you're going to fail again. But the good news is we have a Savior who forgives us. And even though we fail and even though we sin, we continue to preach that gospel to us that Jesus will save us from our sins. The circumstances of the promise we find in verses 18 to to 20. The gospel promise always comes to us in a particular historical context. But it also comes to us in a very particular and providential context. God knows just when we are prepared to hear the good news. And if anybody ever needed to hear good news, it was Joseph. Here he is engaged to his beloved Mary. He's betrothed to her. And he's awaiting that wedding day. And one day she says to him that she's expecting. And he assumes, though no doubt I'm sure she told him the story. It's hard to believe that. And so she, so he was consider, assuming that she had been unfaithful. And so he's going to go through the, the, the law of divorce. And he's going to put her away. He's an honorable man. He doesn't want to shame her. He's going to put her away secretly. But in the midst of being confused, in the midst of being perplexed, in the midst of great heartache, the Lord sends the angel. And for 400 years, 
There's been silence. And now the silence is broken. And God's first words are going to be through this angel that Jesus is here. That he will save his people from their sins. Joseph is undergoing great turmoil. And yet now he hears this glorious promise that Mary's not been faithful. What she has conceived is by the Holy Spirit. And when, he's, when, when, he, when she brings him forth in birth, you're going to call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. What was God saying through this angel, through this messenger? He was saying that, Joseph, things look apparently look hopeless right now, but actually the time is right for you to hear this good news. Think about your own conversion. There are times that God prepares us to hear the message of the gospel. I think of my own conversion some 35 years ago and I was a student at Miami University and in my life just began, even though I was only 19 years of age, it just began to fall apart in so many areas. I was raised in a good Christian home and I'd made a profession of faith, but, but I hadn't really embraced Christ. And my life began to fall to pieces and I really remember this weekend where Things were just seemed completely hopeless. All my, the things that I were finding my identity and my security in just began to crumble. And I'll never forget the night of the 11th of February, 1980, when God providentially arranged my life in such a way that the gospel promise came home to me and my life was forever changed by that. The gospel, the good news comes to us. We lose, usually when we're at our lowest and we need to be convicted and come to our lowest And then we hear this wonderful gospel promise. And again, as believers, we need the encouragement day in and day out. That even though sometimes, and being saved for 35 years, I would think that I'd be a far better Christian by now. And I would think that some of those sinful things would be gone. And sometimes I can find myself almost despairing. But then that message comes to me again. The promise is true. He's going to save me from my sins. So sometimes when God providentially puts us in a position where we feel perplexed and confused and like complete failures, we hear this wonderful message. We preach this gospel message to ourselves. What's the character of this promise? It's, it's a rich, rich promise. When the angel of the Lord, this messenger says, she's going to bring forth a son, verse 21, and you will say, he shall save you call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Many years ago, we, have a, we always have a Christmas Day service in South Africa. It's a, it's a great tradition. And so we gather at 9 o'clock Christmas morning and have a service. And I, I preach from this verse, and I couldn't get away from this. And I spent the next two months just preaching from this one phrase, he will save his people from their sins. Because the more I dug into this, the more I realized just the, 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 the comprehensive nature, nature of our salvation. The comprehensive, overwhelming nature of the gospel. And there's several things that I would just want to share with you briefly this morning. That this gospel promise is, is, is exhaustive. The gospel saves us from, it justifies us. And the gospel sanctifies us. And the gospel glorifies us. This gospel truth, he will save his people from their sins. It's a, it's a holistic It's a comprehensive salvation. He he saves us, first of all, from the penalty of our sins. And sometimes the longer we're saved, perhaps we don't appreciate that as much. I was reading a book this morning called Gospel Formed. I forget the author. 
And, and he made the wonderful statement. He said, no matter how long you are saved, he said, you need to just sit at the foot of the cross and realize the greatness that you've been forgiven of your sins, delivered once for all from the penalty. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's huge. We ought to be rejoicing in that, that this salvation, that Jesus Christ saves us from the penalty of our sins. I was preaching last year in my church, and afterwards a visitor said to me, he said, I appreciate your message. He said, but you left something out. He said, you said that Jesus saves us from our sins. He says, that's true. He said, but remember that Jesus actually saves us from God. And he went on to say, to explain, remind me, that we're actually saved from the wrath of God. You think about that. Isn't the gospel amazing? That the very God that we need to be saved from is the one who saves us. He saves us from his own wrath against us. Jesus saves us from the penalty of our sins. And we should never, never minimize that. But he also saves us from the power and from the practice of our sins. Some weeks ago, a man in our church called me and he said, my, my mother and stepfather are having some marriage difficulties and would you be willing to meet with them? They don't go to our church. In fact, they've always been very, very opposed to me because of some things that happened years ago. And he said, I'm amazed that they're willing to meet with you. Will you meet with them? And I said, sure. And so they came and, 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 and we talked and, 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 and the husband, and I said, what's one of the problems here? What do you think the major problem here? And the wife says, well, my, my husband is, a, is an alcoholic. And because of that, that brings all kinds of problems into our, our home. And so I said to this man, I said, do you think that uh, your problem is a behavioral problem? It's a sin problem, or do you think it's a disease? And he said, well, no, I don't think it's a disease. And I said, well, good. I said, because if you thought it was a disease, I couldn't help you. But if you realize that, that this problem is a sin problem, I do have some help for you. And I shared the gospel with a man that night, and, and I gave him a, a, a little book that we use called Ultimate Questions. And I said, come back next week and we'll meet. And he came back that week, and we talked about the gospel for about an hour and a half. And then he came back again the next week, and I began to, to, to again, just dig into the gospel with this man. Just before I left last week to come overseas, he sent me an SMS, and he said, I just want to thank you. He said that our times of getting together and studying the word of God, he said, I now know that Jesus is my Savior. He hasn't touched a drop of alcohol since then. This man has realized that he's forgiven of the penalty of his sins. He's also experiencing deliverance from the power of sin and from the practice of sin. And that's a glorious reality in the life of a child of God. And those who are saved, we, we desire to be holy, do we not? We desire so desperately that this grip of the power of sin would 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 let go and that our life would change and that's what the christian life is is all about is realizing that through jesus christ not only are our sins forgiven as glorious as that is but he changes our life i i heard a man last year in south africa named jerry rag for about 10 years he was john macarthur's personal assistant and he came and he was doing a conference and he shared his testimony he said that he and his wife were converted in their mid-20s and he said his wife was converted first and he said what led to his conversion was watching his wife, who struggled with the same issues that he did, all of a sudden he saw her change. He said, and one day it dawned on me 
that she seems to have a power to change that I don't have. And, and, and as they talked about that, and as someone, God brought someone into her life to share the gospel with him, he realized he needed the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God saved him. And God has changed his life. God, the gospel, this promise to live by, it saves us, it's exhaustive, it saves us from the penalty and from the power and practice of sin and from the, the pleasures of sin. There was a, a Scottish preacher named Thomas Chalmers, I think it's pronounced, who wrote a sermon, preached a sermon back in the 1800s called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. There's a new book out now, and it's called, it's an updated version of that, it's called A New Obsession. And Thomas Chalmers preached a sermon on 1 John 2, which, of course, in that passage in 1 John 2, it tells us to love not the world and the things of the world. He said it's a vain attempt to just try to exercise self-discipline to stop loving the world. He said that's never going to happen. He said it this way. He said the only way to dispossess the heart of its old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. And he went on to explain that it's, it's that gospel of Jesus Christ. As we fall in love with the Lord Jesus Christ, as we meditate upon the gospel and love Christ more. That's the thing that drives out the old affections and replaces it with a, a new affection. I have an oak tree in my, in my yard that all, my, all the other trees that lo- lose their leaves in the winter, they lose them quickly. But the oak tree, many of those leaves that die in winter are still hanging on the tree in springtime. But there's one thing that always forces them all off, and that's new life. As, as, as the, a new bud begins to push out at the end of the branch, those dead leaves fall. And one day it dawned on me, that's really what the Christian life is like. That the longer we're saved and the more that we meditate upon the gospel and love our Savior, the, 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 the new life in Christ begins to push out the old affections. I, uh, as you can tell, I'm, uh, I've always been a small person physically. I used to play football, believe it or not. And then one day when I was a freshman in high school, I said, enough is enough. Though I've always been small, I've always been very wise. I picked the biggest guy to be my best friend. And in high school, my best friend was 6'2", 220 pounds. He was an all-American tight end for our high school. He was the right kind of friend to have. And I went away to university. He went away to the University of Maryland on a scholarship. He hoped to play professional football. The Lord saved me my freshman year. We came back that summer and we were at a, we were at a party and, and Bill said, hey, we're all going to go downtown. We're going to go to the bars. And I said, Bill, I'm not going to go. I said, I, I don't do that anymore. And he said, why not? And I said, well, some things have changed in my life and I was able to share the gospel. And I'll never forget this. He said, well, you're going with me. And he picked me up and put me in his car. So we drove down and he ordered whatever he ordered, and I was drinking a Coke, and I was sharing the gospel with him. Another friend of mine had been converted that year in university, and he began to share the gospel with Bill. Bill went back to the University of Maryland, and there was a guy who befriended him, a little gymnast, a guy smaller than me. He weighed 100 pounds. And this gymnast was a believer, and he wouldn't let go of Bill and kept preaching the gospel to Bill. And Bill one day called me and said he'd been saved. He went back to university, and he had a glorious future. In fact, he was praying in the day, playing in the days with Boomer Esiason, if you know him. But, of course, most of you are younger than me. But anyway, 
Bill calls me one day. He said, Doug, he said, I've got some good news. I said, what's that? He said, I just quit the football team. I said, you what? He said, honestly, Doug, he said, since I've come back here, he said, I'm not doing well spiritually. I need to get back home. I need to get back into my church. And he walked away from that, went back and played football for the University of Cincinnati. Bill became, eventually, some years later, became the president of Athletes in Action in, uh, in the United States. And to this day, in this day, he's pastoring the church. Bill lived for playing football. And I'm not saying that that's wrong. I'm not saying it's wrong to love sports. It's not wrong to be a sportsman. But when the Lord saved Bill, there was a new affection that took over. There was something that changed in his life. And that's what the gospel does to us. It changes our, our loves. Aren't you glad that the gospel saves us from all those things, but it also saves us one day completely from the, the presence of sin? One day, the fight's going to be over. One day, we're going to be in glory. I talked to my father a few weeks ago, and he was excited about me coming here and uh, seeing him. He's not been well. He's suffering from dementia, early stages of Alzheimer's. He has his good days. And I said, how are you doing? And he said, better than I deserve. He's a, he's a believer. I got a phone call this week from my mom, and she said he's in the hospital. He's not well. He, when I go there tomorrow, they live in Atlanta. We're gonna, I'm going to help my mom put him in a nursing home. My mom said, barring a miracle, Dad will never, never come home again. And as sad as that is, you know what I know? I know that one day my dad's going to have a glorified body. Thank God for the gospel. One day, one day completely, completely delivered from the presence of sin. Sometimes the fight gets, is difficult, isn't it? And discouraging. But one day we're going to be in glory. We're going to be like Christ. Thank God for this promise. He shall save his people from their sins, past, present, and future. It's a glorious, glorious promise. But this promise isn't cheap. The promise is expensive. But before we get to that, I want to flesh this out some more. You know, when Jesus Christ saves his people, other things are saved as well. You know, we talk about collateral damage. Collateral damage in warfare. You know, there's, there's, there's collateral dividends, there's collateral blessings when God saves his people. When somebody is saved, so often other things are saved as well. There might be some of you here today who can relate to this, that when God saves you, he ended up also saving your marriage. I think of the first, this man that I met 20, 25 years ago in South Africa, his wife was going to the church that I was pastoring at the time. And she said to me, she said, would you come see my husband Sometime he's not a believer, he's an atheist. And I said, sure. And then she said, by the way, every pastor who comes, he throws out of the house. So I prayed long and hard about the timing of this. And uh, one day she called me and she said, hey, Doug, she said, uh, Jim's at home all by himself tonight. We're all gone. It'd be a great time to visit him. So I went and knocked on his door. Very, He opened the door, invited me in, and we spent about an hour and a half talking. At the end of the night, he said, he said hey, Doug, he said, you know what, I, I kind of like you. He said, you can come here anytime you want, but don't ever talk about God. He said, if you talk about God, I'm going to throw you out of my house. I said, fair enough, it's your house. And so it was an open door, and I would go to his house every week. We'd sit around and talk. I'd never bring up God. He would. 
He'd get mad, throw me out of his house, literally. But in spite of that, a friendship grew. And one day I said to Jim, I said, Jim, you know, um, one day you're going to be worshiping at our church. And he said to me, I'll never forget this, he said, Doug, you will be pregnant before I come to your church. And about a week later, I called him and said, hey, Jim, you never believe it. I just came back from the doctor. Anyway, this went on for a while. One, one morning, we built a new church building. And I said, Jim, I want you to be my special guest. Will you come as we have a special service? And I didn't think he'd say yes. And, and he said, I'd love to. I couldn't believe it. I thought I had the wrong phone number or something. He came to church that morning, make a long story short, afterwards with tears in his eyes. He grabs my hand. He said, I need to talk to you. And God saved him. And his life was transformed, but it wasn't just his life. It was his marriage. He was a difficult man, and he would, he would tell you that. He was a difficult husband. He was a difficult man to live with. But at his 35th wedding anniversary some years ago, he invited my wife and I to the event. At the end of that event, Jimmy gets down and he says to everyone, he said, you know, for many years I didn't treat my wife correctly. But God has saved me and God has changed me. And he got down and he washed his wife's feet. It was the most emotional, moving thing. And I thought to myself, God saved him and he saved his marriage. God saves God saves nations. I, I live just south of Zambia, and I go to Zambia and minister there sometimes. And it's a, it's a wonderful testimony how David Livingston went there when it was darkest, darkest Africa, spiritually speaking. And now the gospel has taken hold, and, and wonderful work of God taking place there. Things are changing for better there because of the gospel. The gospel, the, the gospel changes, when you, and the gospel grabs us, and we live by this promise. It changes, it changes churches. I remember some years ago going through a difficult time and I thought to myself, this church needs a new pastor. And I was praying about, should I leave? And I thought, the church needs a new pastor. And one day, the Lord was just showing me in his word that actually, you're right, Doug, the church does need a new pastor, but it doesn't need somebody with a different name. In other words, you need some changes in your own life. It was about that time I had a new appreciation for the gospel. I think about Paul's words to to Timothy, in the end of 1 Timothy 4, where he says to him, he said, take heed unto yourself and, and to the teaching. He says, pay close attention to yourself and to the teaching. And he says, when you do that, he said, you will both save yourself and those who hear you. He wasn't speaking about work salvation. He was saying to Timothy, grab the gospel and let the gospel grab a hold of you. And as it does, and as you are increasingly sanctified you will see that in the church. So often we can find things to criticize in the church. And I pastored the same church for 22 years. And, and I could give you a list of things that are not right. But the solution to that is usually not leaving the church. The solution is appreciating the gospel more and more as the community of faith. And as we do that, we begin to grow together. And churches are saved. Churches are sanctified. Churches are increasingly Christ-centered and bringing glory to him. So this promise is, is wonderfully expansive. This promise is, is wonderfully extensive. He says, he shall save his people from their sins. And if I could just paraphrase this, he will save all of his people from all of their sins. This promise is extensive to everyone who is his people. How do you know whether or not you are one of his people? You realize you're one of his people when you realize that you are a sinner and you need a savior. 
and you turn to Christ. You realize that you are one of his people when you love him. And I love that video. And you, you love him with all of your heart. And you love him with all of your soul. And you love him with all of your mind. When you love him, when you're growing in that love, you know that you are one of his people. And there's great encouragement that he's going to save us, all of us, from all of our sins one day. And this is not the time to belabor this important point, but the extent of Christ's mission to save his people from all of their sins is the extent of our mission. That it's not just our own community, but it's all the nations of the world. In order, when we, when, we, when we really love the gospel and we live by this promise and we realize that Jesus is saving me and, and our church from our sins, he wants to do that from every people group on earth. When we understand this gospel promise, we're willing to take risk in order to do that. We had a, a family in our church we sent to Ethiopia years ago as a missionary. And then the door opened to go into Somaliland. And one day I visited him as we made preparation to send them into a, a country that was pretty much closed. They boast of being a 100% Muslim nation. This is just north of Somalia. And we went to this capital city of Hargeisa. And as Franz Wall drove me around, he said, you see that store there? He said, a missionary was coming out of it and he was assassinated. We drove by a home. He said, another missionary was living there from the UK. And one day they were sitting in their lounge and somebody came by with a machine gun and killed them. And there were all kinds of martyrs. And Francois said, I know that we're, we're facing a risk here. But because he lived by the promise of the gospel, because he was empowered by that, he was willing to take that risk. They taught their eight-year-old boys how to drive a land cruiser in case something happened to mom and dad so they could get out of town. Why do they do that? Because they believe this gospel. And they believe that Jesus is worthy. And he's going to save all of his people from all of their sins. And they're all over this globe. And therefore they're willing to pay a price for that. This promise is exclusive. It is only for his people. But not only that. It's exclusively about him. One thing I've really grown, I think, over the last decade in my own walk with the Lord. Is appreciating that the gospel is not merely a message. It's about a person. Reading today in, in, in James 4 about he gives more grace. He gives more grace. He, he overloads us with grace. But how does God give us grace? He gives us Christ. This gospel message, literally this phrase reads this. It reads, he it is. You will call his name Jesus. And then, interesting, by the way, in your Bibles, it's Jesus is probably capitalized. That was not by the Bible translators. In, in the Greek itself, it's capitalized. It, it's just drawing attention. He it is. His name is Jesus. And he and he alone is the one who will save his people from their sins. This message is exclusively about him. And because it's a message about Christ, who has all authority in heaven and earth, he can save all of his people wherever they are, no matter all the obstacles to that. One of the brightest spots in my ministry was just three weeks ago baptizing a man that was raised in our church. He's now, I think, 27 years of age. His mom and dad were believers, and his two brothers were believers. And Chase was, was, was always just fighting against the gospel. My daughter, who's with me, Katie, told me the other day, she's been praying for Chase since she was 12 years of age, that God would, would save him. And one day I noticed him coming back to church, and he sat in church Week after week, and one day we were, I was talking to him, 
And he said, you know what? He said, just recently, God has saved me. And before, and when I, before I baptized him, we, we had a meeting. And he said, you know, Pastor Doug? He call, still calls me Pastor Doug because I'm such an old man. He says, Pastor Doug, he said, I've learned something. Until God turns the lights on, no matter how often you hear, until God turns the lights on, you're just not going to see it. But you see, he's one of his people. And Jesus Christ did what he needed to do to bring Chase to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this promise, this promise, as I said earlier, is not cheap. It's expensive. You're going to call his name Jesus, for he it is that will save his people from their sins. There's an old church father named Anselm who said that the debt was so great that, that, that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it, and he paid that debt in his son. Can I read this verse to you in Galatians 3.13 as I try to pull this together? Paul writes and says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He's quoting there from Deuteronomy 21.23. And Paul makes the observation that it's Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone who became a curse for us. Last year, I was in the state seeing my family. I, I come to see my parents once a year. And I was here during July, and I was at a church during uh, the early, um, around July 4th. And there was a banner in one of the churches that said that freedom is not free. And they were having a, it was, a, it was more of a political statement, I'm afraid, than it was a spiritual statement. But I thought, that is so true of the gospel. You don't know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But that freedom was costly. It wasn't free for Christ. He paid a price. He became a curse for us. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5. For he has made him who knew no sin become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What does it mean that Christ became sin? What does it mean that Christ became a curse for us? One of the most powerful biblical illustrations of this is in Deuteronomy chapter 27. If you turn there, I want to show you what it meant when Christ became a curse for us. And I want to show you this because I, I want to help us to appreciate what Christ went through. The sinless Son of God. The one who had never sinned. The one who came and fulfilled every jot and tittle of the law. The one who, who endured temptation after temptation. The one who was perfectly holy and righteous, becoming a curse for us. We have, we have an illustration of this in Deuteronomy 27. God had said in Deuteronomy 11 that when you come into Canaan, I want you to split the tribes up, some on Mount Ebal and some on Mount Gerizim. And, and, and I want you to, one side, to shout the curses and the other side to shout the blessings. And in verse 12 of chapter 27 of Deuteronomy, he says, These shall stand on Mount Gerizim, to bless the people. And he mentions the tribes there. Verse 13. And these shall stand on Mount Ebal to curse. And he names those tribes. And the Levites shall speak with a loud voice. And they shall say to all the men of Israel who are standing. These elders who are standing on these mountaintops. Cursed is the one who makes a carved or molded image. In abomination to the Lord. The work of the hands of the craftsmen. And sets it up in secret. 
And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Now when Paul said that Christ became a curse for us, put yourself back under Deuteronomy 27 and understand that when Christ became a curse for us, it's as though the Father and all of heaven was looking at Christ on the cross and they were, say, they, they were saying that Christ is cursed for the sin of idolatry. Can you even, we, we can't even fathom what that must, must have been for the Lord Jesus Christ who loved God for all of eternity. And yet he is suffering the curse for our idolatry. And, all, and the Father, as it were, and all the host of heaven were saying, Amen. As Christ was on the cross. Verse 16, Cursed is the one who treats his father or his mother with contempt. Here's Jesus who comes back from the temple from Jerusalem and he submits himself to his parents. He's the perfect son. He's the perfect child. And yet he's being cursed as though he dishonored his mother and his father. Verse 17, Curses the one who moves his, labors, his neighbor's landmark, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the epitome of perfection, of integrity, is being judged for, uh, for, for injustice. Look at verse 18. Curses the one who makes the blind to wander off the road. Here's Jesus who for three years was healing people who were blind and now he's hanging on a cross for the sins of those who mistreat those who are blind. Cursed, verse 19, is the one who perverts the justice due to the stranger. If there was anybody who walked this earth who was perfectly just, it was the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet he's becoming a curse for all of our injustices. You read on and he speaks about these, these gross sins. Verse 20, curses is the one who lies with his father's wife. Look at verse 21. Cursed is the one who lies with any kind of animal. This is sobering. The Lord Jesus Christ, perfectly holy, is suffering the sins for all of sinners who have committed the worst kind of sexual perversion. He suffered. He became a curse for us. This gospel is not cheap. It's expensive. But I want to encourage us too. When you read through the whole list of these curses that Jesus Christ became for us, there's hope for all of us. There's hope for the worst sinner in this room. There is hope for the worst sinner in this world because he it is that will save his people from their sins. And when that dawns on us, when that dawns on us, that gives us incredible Incredible encouragement. And I close with that. The last thing about this promise is the consequences of the promise. Look back at Matthew 1.21 very quickly. I've got three minutes, right? I'm not looking for Mike because he might say no. Verse 22 says, So all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel which is translated, God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And what did he do? He called his name Jesus. Some minutes ago, we looked at the fact that Joseph was facing a very confusing 
perplexing situation. He's heart sore like he's never been in his life. He's hopeless. But what does he hear? He hears the gospel promise. He hears Mary is carrying the Christ child. He hears the gospel. He will save his people from their sins. And after getting that divine message of the gospel, he now is no longer afraid. He now is willing to live with the scorn because nobody believed that Mary was a virgin. Nobody believed that she had been faithful. Nobody believed that the child, the child she was carrying was conceived of the Holy Spirit. So he was willing to live under scorn. He was willing to exercise self-control and, and not to know her physically as his wife until after Christ was born. He was willing to face all of this. And, and the glorious thing is, when this child is born and people said, what have you named this child? And they're thinking, what have you named this illegitimate child? And with great boast, he would say, his name is Jesus. Here's the Joshua we've been waiting for for all these centuries. Here is Jesus, the one that will save us from our sins. Here's what simply Joseph did when he heard the gospel promise. He then obeyed the word of the Lord. He faced a hostile culture and he faced it with great boldness because he'd experienced the gospel. We live in difficult days and I don't have a crystal ball and I don't know what the future holds for South Africa. In many ways, it feels like it's just falling to pieces. But I do know this. This gospel promise that Jesus will save his people from their sins is what gives me motivation every day to get up, to serve him, to obey his word. It's a wonderful promise to live by. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the gospel. Thank you, Lord, for what I sense increasingly in churches is a return to the gospel as not just the ABCs, but the A to the Z of the Christian life. We ask, God, that you would give us encouragement day by day to preach this gospel to ourselves, to preach it to one another, to encourage one another with the glorious truth that, Jesus, you're saving us now and you're going to save us finally one day. You're saving your people. And though the world seems to be falling to pieces, you have your people everywhere. And all of them is going to be brought in because of this gospel promise. And because of the gospel, one day there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. One day there's going to be new glorified bodies. Give us hope on this Lord's day. Give us great joy as we once again find our encouragement in the wonderful truth of Jesus who saves his people from their sins. We ask these things in his name. Amen.